0: Yeah, me, me and Dave are weird because me and Dave are totally different kind of personalities. So we we're kind of quite we were kind of competitive early on. So he'd like go and do an E2. He went to Colmore once, and then I was I had a pot washing job at the time, and I'd heard he'd gone and done this. So like after I'd finished work, it was like in winter, I like cycled across the moor in the night time with like I think there no head torch, and like went and did this E2. This like it was, it was like basically a glorified boulder one, I suppose, but like. And I was like, oh, I've got to go do that, because 'cause has gone in I think that was his first extreme actually. So I was like, I've got to go do my first extreme. So there's a bit of competition. And then I kept I don't really know I think we were just outloads, so you just try the next there was nothing else left to try, because 'cause you've done the routes. I was trying Moonflower, I think. Which is an E four, E five at Highcliffe Nab. I think that's what I was trying before Ian died.
1: There's this little cycle of life that plays out on web forums. An ebb and flow of different characters and recurring themes, jokes and nuisances. And every now and then, an agitator emerges. Loud-voiced, disrespectful. It's ironic that these are all the qualities that we celebrate in climbing stories. Yet in small doses on internet posts, they rile people up. It's fair to say that Franco Cookson has done just that. He appeared on the scene more than a decade ago. He was an impish imposter of a climber, this teenage ego, and a different take on a climber's origin story. He wasn't part of the regular scene and its established norms, and he didn't care to listen to them. And over the past ten years, he's established himself as a climber with an appetite for bold routes. And he typically hasn't followed the usual path. He hasn't repeated many hard routes outside of his own patch. Those he has repeated have all been in a particular style, bold but relatively short face climbs and slabs. And unlike most of us, he hasn't been afraid to hit the floor. You're listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing.
0: Yeah, my pal, my pal Ian showed me UK Climbing. I think he like instantly regretted having shown me this website. Yeah, pretty embarrassing really. I mean, I, mean like, I remember having this really, really vividly, this stupid conversation. I think about we started some thread on UK Climbing where I was just like, I was like, how come like, people who can boulder like i don't know, i can't remember exactly what it was but like how can people who can boulder like v3 how can they they can go and like go and do like a v1 at, at height or whatever and, like they can climb up pretty close to like their limit soloing how can people who climb like 6b can't just on site 6b at their limit and like those people spent absolutely ages like trying to explain to it obviously like i wasn't even interested in really listening that's what they had to say but um yeah, well, how did that manifest itself in, like, r- real climbing, I don't know. <laughs> like, we we were just climbing the moors. Well, we didn't have any rock shoes or any ropes or anything to start off with. And then I think we pretty quickly got some, like, second-hand rock shoes from somewhere. So we genuinely, genuinely didn't know, like, that other people, like, really climbed. It was really, really weird. We were maybe 13, maybe even younger when we used to scramble about in, like, the quarries and that and trees. And then... It was kind of like 13, 14. And then I think we probably got our first climbing. shoes like age 14. Um, and then we met these other people who were actually like proper climbers and what well, kind of proper climbers and took us climbing. And then, so it was, it was it was less like, how did you find, how did you see things differently? It was more just like, we were totally like sheltered from the rest of the climbing scene. I quite often tell this story of like this hard, this hard BS Lion King. And think people think you're just talking, like, bullshit or something. Really vividly remember when we met these other, like, proper climbers, they weren't really proper climbers, like but, like, this guy called Luke, who was a couple of years older than us, and I saw him do this hard VS, and it was just like, I, didn't, I don't think I even thought, like, how would I ever do that? It was just like, how does anybody climb that? Like it just looked like totally impossible. It was, like, coming up this fin of rock. But, yeah, So and then E2, it was like, I don't think I saw anyone do an E2 for a I didn't even know what E two was. So Luke, who was like, "This goes to," he's always dipped in and out of climbing. Didn't he, he had this theory that climbers were like um, obsessed with danger and like, wanted to just like control it. I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I mean maybe. I don't know. Maybe the danger's not actually quite as quite as big as we think as well. So like one thing I've done quite a lot recently is just like falling off routes. I went and tried one of Dave McLeod's routes, and there was like a decent RP. So like, and it was really hard, and I knew there was pretty low chance of me doing it. And in his write up of it, he makes it sound really dangerous. So I can tell you, he's not lying. He's not like wrong. It is pretty dangerous, but like, I was like, well, if I fall off that, that RP might rip. But if the RP rips, it's going to be pretty close to the ground. So like, that's not actually really that dangerous if you have like loads of, loads of little margins. And I fell off and I did hurt my ankle, but from another reason, just so a clipped ledge on the way down, and the RP actually held. So you're like, all right. So I think quite a lot of routes like that, particularly if you're doing routes that are sub kind of 15 meters, sub 20 meters, if you've got some gear or like, so like nothing lasts on paper, you're like, all right. So you've fallen off from like 12 or 14 meters or whatever, and you've only got some sky hooks, which are almost certainly going to rip man that's really dangerous you can hit the ground from 12 metres but actually the skyhooks whilst they'll almost certainly rip the will also almost certainly take a lot of the impact of the fallout and you've got a lot of if you do it in like summer when the when the bilberries are up and you put pads on you've got pretty good landing so it's only like 50% higher than a big highball would be skyhooks are taking a bit of fallout well actually you're pretty unlikely to hurt yourself out you and actually you could probably occasionally you'll fall off from really high and you'll be okay quite often you'll fall off from a lot less high and not be okay. But yeah, I mean, deck, like you've got to choose your deck outs as well. Like, you know, if he's like, decking out of Pembroke, like, or well, Caff really hurt himself doing that, didn't he? Decking out, not at Pembroke, but decking out on sea cliffs. If the ground's hard, that's the great thing about the moors, is I think, um, actually, I think there's some skill involved, actually. I should big myself up more. <laughs> I definitely see see more. <laughs> I'm pretty good at falling off. I'm a lot better at falling than climbing. And a lot of that's just jumping around. So, like before we climbed, we used to climb a lot of trees and like jump out of trees and like jump between trees and stuff. So, and jump, I used to go to like Whitby and like jump off the pier there and stuff. So, I think you can like train that. Other than my legs are a bit knackered now. I basically went and tried to, I want it was almost like grade chasing, really. I wanted to climb like the hardest trad route I could, which meant that like I wanted to go and look for stuff that had no gear. Trad climbing, you've got like. It's like a formula, it's like difficulty times by how pumpy it is, times by how dangerous it is. So if you focus on any one of those things or kinda of become average all three of being able to push all those things, then you're able to do really hard trad routes. So it definitely became I had this big thing in my head. I had a few like delusions in my head. One thing I really thought really strong was that I was gonna die when I was twenty-five. I had this like massively which I obviously haven't done. So everything was like, I was like trying to cramp stuff in before I was like 25. Yeah, and I did loads of like really bold roots. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, sounds a bit insane, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds absolutely <laughs> ludicrous. Yeah. Uh, well, so if you're really um, I don't know, fatalistic, yeah. then maybe
1: you're just like, it's going to happen anyway.
0: So. But it is going to happen. I think that's one of the things like, because uh, you are going to like, I mean, if you have a near-death experience, you like, time is totally not relevant. So like an instant, you can have a, an infinite number of thoughts in like an instant. In the moment that you die, and everyone's going to die, like, it doesn't matter if you get blown up like by a bomb, you're still that instant. However quickly you die, it could be like absolute infinite ponderment and like thought about stuff. So like in that moment, if you look back on your life or you have like these like really raw emotions, like what are you going to look back on? So if you think, Oh, I'm going to die. Well, you know, you're going to die. Don't you? Everyone knows they're going to die. It's actually like certainty, isn't it? Pretty much. If you have like that certainty of like, Oh, you're going to die. You have to kind of live. I mean, maybe I've gone a bit too far of like, you have to live the rest of your life. Like that's going to happen. Cause if not, you're just like totally ignoring, you totally ignoring reality. Aren't you? So you can look at me and be like, oh, that's someone who's just like deluded and living like a total lunatic. Well, maybe not now, but like I had done. But actually, it's like the other people who are like insane, isn't it? Because they're just like ignoring like what is certainty. It's weird, isn't it? Because it just sounds so grandiose, doesn't it? Like, oh, we're going to die one day. What, what are you doing about it? And you're like, well, you have to. It's a bit like saying, oh, I don't believe in anything. Like God or whatever. And you're like, what have you thought about it? And then like, oh no, not really. Well, all right, you can be agnostic, but you have to have thought about it, don't you? Because it's your life. It's not like, you can't just be like, (laughs) because that is insane, isn't it? If you don't think about it. If you think, actually, I don't want to like, go to the grave not having done like, nothing lasts at Sandy Crag. It makes the decision of doing nothing lasts at Sandy Crag totally easy, doesn't it? Even if, and that, I think that's the mentality you have to adopt. If you're not, you know, if you're not Dave McLeod or somebody who's like really good at climbing or Steve McClure, if you're like, right, well, I want to do that route. And maybe it actually allows you to push it further than they can push it because Dave McLeod is like way, way, way better at climbing than I am. But he has to have such a margin for error because he like has a family and like is like a reasonable person. So like he has to have such a margin to do these like bold routes, to do something that's a certain level of boldness. That actually, like, like holding back, where it's actually, if, you, if you're coming at it from a totally different point of view, it'd be like, right, I'm going to be way weaker and like way less good. If you can just push the margin, like, the hardest ball pumps I've done are like on roots in a soloing position. If you can do that, then you don't need to be anywhere near as good, do you? And that's really exciting. I think that's like the most exciting thing ever for the future. That, like, if some the next generation for trad climbing, if trad climbing doesn't just die, if like someone like manages to marry up the really, really, high ability of like bouldering and sport climbing that people seem to have in Sheffield and like hanging on six millimetre edges and stuff if someone marries that up with like that philosophy of like I don't know what you call it, like, you could call it fatalism or well, if it's not really, is it's more like, positive than that, then you'd have like something that's absolutely incredible like you could climb like way, way harder
1: Franco's early climbing career played out in an unusually public manner on the UK Climbing Forums there were some egotistical rants, some unusual looking new routes, but there was one incident which was written up later by mountain guide Twid Turner. Franco wasn't directly involved in this incident, but he was involved in some rather vitriolic posting to defend his friend.
0: We went on this absolutely just ridiculous trip to Scotland, so me and Dave had never been winter climbing. And then we saw we saw Ian. So Ian was this tiny little guy like he's a couple of years older than us but he's really small and a really strong climber he could just hang around forever and he was just like this really solid climber and he's real old school oh and then we also i suppose we should probably mention we we met really really good force for um climbing the most the cleveland mountaineering club which always sounds a bit weird doesn't it cleveland mountaineering club but they're like really, really active, old school, like climbing on wet rock, using old gear, like out in all weathers, kind of climbing climbing the snow, like dry tooling, well, they didn't call it dry tooling, just like winter climbing with like no conditions in the mud. Um And then Ian had like, so I suppose he had no mates really, apart from this pal, Rob. So he attached himself onto this older group of climbers. So he was like really old school, and then he like made us quite old school, I suppose. But he had been like, he'd been winter climbing like two days or something. I think we thought it was like really experienced. And so they say had this like purple course, this like one litre course. So we all drove up to Ben Nevis. And it was proper winter conditions, really cold. And we all just like slept on the ground. I know we slept in the car, just like sitting up in the seats. And Dave Wharf slept like in the back of the car. And then me and Ian would wake up really cold at night and turned. Um, I think David like snuggled behind the car so he like, wouldn't get run over in this car park. And then we'd turn the engine on and like it filled fill Dave's sleeping bag with like all the exhaust fumes. So Dave had like a really grim time. And then the first day we went up and tried to do, oh, I forget the names, sort what of they call Is it, Green Gully. Anyway, yeah, so we were walking up there and then I triggered like an avalanche. First hour on the hill, I triggered this, like, I mean, it was, I, don't, I don't know whether it was big or not. I lost all my gear anyway and uh, like took, Took Ian and Dave out and like Ian's crampon like went like, really nearly like went in my my groin but really nearly like totally knocked me and I lost like my rope and like all my ice axes so I had to like sit out I was like oh, I'll see you back at the car so they did Green Gully and then the next day Ian took us at 0.5. and I was like absolutely I was like a gibbering wreck like first winter route. I was like, absolutely terrified we only had like two ice screws so and then the next day. Because David lent me my his ice axes, so he just sat out all day just in the cold, <laughs> pretty sound, really. And then the next day, Dave and Ian went and did I think it was Kellett's route or something, it's like a like grade six. So it was like, I mean, Ian, like, it's pretty impressive, really. Like, basically soloed this route because he did it. I don't think he had any ice creams for the pictures. And Dave was second in with these like crappy old ice axes, and then and then they were like pitch two or something and Dave fell off, like his ice axes popped. And then Ian had decided, to, they were just leading on like one eight millimetre rope. And then Ian had decided to like, just like body belay him for something. I can't remember why he was body belaying. Yeah, he had this terrible belay and then half his belay ripped out and there's just like one old duff peg or something that had held. And because it ripped out, it like, Ian had spun sideways and couldn't hold the body belay and just dropped Dave like, so Dave fell the full length of the route, um, end up in the gully, and uh, he had this sig bottle in his bag. So we we'll, we never went to the pub because we had no money. But that night we went to the pub, and uh, Dave Dave got his sig bottle out, and it was just like dented like right to the. But it was totally unscathed. He had another rope in his bag. Weirdly, I don't know why they didn't use that. I think it's the different diameters. So I think the rope and sig bottle had like saved him. I think he bounced like three times, and every time landed on his rucksack. And and then the bottom of the gully was quite steep. So and then we went to the hospital and there was this like foreign doctor. And how how far did you fall? And Dave was like, sixty metres. And the guy's like, six metres? That is a big fall. And he's like, no no no, sixty metres. He's like, no, 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 like there's some mistake. If you fall sixty metres, you are dead. He's like, no, no. So So we're going and doing these like stupid things, like not particularly like, hard things, but just like having these ridiculous times out feeling like invincible
1: If you've been posting on the forums for a long time you might remember Ian Jackson He became a regular poster on UKC and always seemed very measured in his responses on the forums Twid's article pointed out some of the mistakes that Ian had made in his accident on the Ben While Franco's reaction was anger, Ian responded thanking Twid for rescuing him and calmly correcting a couple of the assumptions about the situation Ian was killed in two thousand and eight in an accident while abseiling off a sport route in Chamonix. Franco was in the Alps with a young team at the time, losing a mentor had an understandably profound effect on his outlook
0: on climbing. I think it's generally pretty negative when people die. Like, I don't think it's like all right, we're all great like comrades. <laughs> let's go and I think Luke pretty much Luke's always like giving up and start climbing again and stuff and he was he wasn't really living in the moors anymore anyway, so um, and then Dave was kind of Dave's a very kind of strong like mentally strong unlike anyone else I know actually like most strong people in inverted commas like when you actually get to know them you are actually just like total wrecks of like humanity but actually like uh, Dave is just seem kind of like infallibly strong <laughs> like Yeah, a bit weird, really, kind of seems to be able to just kind of plod on regardless of whatever happens. And then I was like a bit of a mess. If you lived in like a vacuum without other people in your life, that would be like, you'd be able to climb a lot harder, I think. But then it goes back to this, that's that's what's great about that philosophy of like thinking that you're actually going to (laughs) die, is that even that that just allows you to just dismiss everything because you're like I've seen what it's like when like a mother loses her child multiple times I've seen like you know other people who who are left who are left behind that's going to happen anyway yeah I remember so I was like climbing with Ian a lot more so I, didn't, I hadn't actually known Ian that long it was like a really really intense time I spent loads of time with him and was all I was thinking about, like just going climbing all the time. Yeah. And then he said he was going to the Alps, so I was like, ah, I'll come out to the Alps with you. And like so I suppose that was our attempt at getting into like doing what everyone else did. And then when Ian died, I suppose that kind of put us off put us off like chamony and stuff. Yeah, he was it was complete opposite of Well Dave's quite like that actually. But it's completely opposite of me anyway. (laughs) Yeah, which I think kind of Yeah, I've had quite a few friends who've died, like quite close friends which I think messes you up quite a bit. Yeah, when you have someone like that who's... Um, I mean, everyone becomes an angel, don't they, when they die? But, like, weirdly, I think a lot of people who do die are, like... some well, the people who I have had die are, like, the most interesting and kind of sound people I've known. And Ian was, like... I mean, he had a lot of failings, like like everyone does, but, he was, yeah, he was, like, really modest and really... Um, yeah, just like I wanted to do stuff the proper way. So he, re- he really looked up to some guys in the Cleveland Mountain Area Club who were, they were kind of in the 60s then. Um, one of whom we've kind of gotten him to climb at school was like his PE teacher, I think. Chris Woodall, had actually done loads in the Alps. He's a bit of a legend, really. So Ian wanted to go and do like, you know, he wanted to go and do like the proper routes on Pavey or like Scarfell or whatever. Yeah, North Wales. And then he wanted to go and, you know, Chamonix he went and soloed the Wimper cool and stuff. And, you know, wanted to do the Friendo Spur. And so, yeah, and I think when someone dies, like all all the traits that they have that you don't have are kind of really... That's, I think that's one thing I always quite think when someone dies. I'm like, oh, right, that guy was like, or well, that person was really th- like this. And like in a way that I'm like totally not. So like modest yeah. <laughs> or like... Um, solid at climbing rather than just winging stuff, and obviously thinking, why did they die and I didn't? Or, uh, yeah, I don't know. So like, uh, yeah, I think it really messes messes you up when, especially at that, that age. I don't know. It was like such. I don't know. Maybe it's when anyone dies. I think it was. It was really weirdly timed because it was. I've been climbing like two years or something, and I was like, right. And then, obviously, I mean, you can imagine that like, everyone's parents knew each other and, like, you like, can imagine what kind of, like, a harrowing experience it was. And then for Dave, who, like, hadn't gone to the Alps, Ian came back and it was, like, really weird because it, it got... It was, like, the end of, like, Innocence and the end of, like, Ian. <laughs> um, and then I was... And then really weirdly, like, Ian's dad had a fish and chip shop next to the college that I was just going to. So then, like, every day... I'd go and get chips from... I'd go to his fish and chip shop and just order, like, chips. And he'd always, like, give me some fish as well. <laughs> and we, like, didn't really speak, but every day we had this, like, weird ritual. So it was, like, a really, really weird time, like, a bit of a kind of maddening time, really. Yeah, so then... And then I remember... Uh, I can't remember what, I was I was trying some of was, like, maybe a bit harder, and Ian, Ian was, like... Was like, oh, I shouldn't be like top rope in this route. I think I'd just uh top rope and just fall into the Alps or try and something. And he, he was like really disapproving and like saying, I oh, should do it the proper way. Like, uh, it's a be ridiculous. It's like being like in the 80s or something. Like, I don't think anyone else cared to do it like whenever that was. And then, like I said, Ian was like really like old school, like everything has to be on site. And then I'd already had this kind of brief flirtation with like looking at a route. And then I found this amazing unclimbed line at um, danby Crag. Which kind of up to that point was just um, a totally neglected crag. And I found this right and I tried to on-site and I fell off. And like, it was like stupid to try on-site anyway. So I was pretty lucky to get away with. I didn't really get very far anyway. But I was pretty lucky to not hurt myself. But then um, so then I really wanted to do this route. But I knew to do the route I'd have to like kind of... Cheat really, um, as I saw it then. So then I like that was kind of like betraying Ian's memory because he like wouldn't have approved. Tom Ripley and man he was out in the Alps at the time and he had managed to score this apartment that had this hot tub and we were all sitting in this hot tub looking up at like the Drew or something just after Ian had died. And i remember just thinking like, or I might have even talked about it, or just like. Well, we're either going to have to like give up climbing or like the opposite (laughs) because you can't just plod on as usual, like after that's happened. So I suppose I decided I wasn't going to give up because I didn't really have anything else to do. (laughs) And then you're like, all right. And then, yeah, and then it totally tallied with doing, with finding this route. And then, and then at the time I was like, I probably was like solidly only climbing about E2. Um, and this route that I found turned out to be an E8, so I just worked the hell out of it. it was the moose um, at Danby Craig. Yeah, I mean I remember it just being like a totally pure, absolutely pure joy in everywhere, like total hedonistic delight, total like long-term like succeeded at life feeling, and just like amazing. I mean the rocks just amazing on it, and the gears like quite quite bad, and the moves like it's. Just, the way I used to do the move was, like, you, like, go around this array, and you have to get really high left foot. And then, like, I used to, like, dislocate my hip a bit to, like, go around the corner and then do this reach. So it just, like, felt, like, per- it's perfectly designed for me. So, like, the Holy Grail for me was to always find, like, something that was, like, ludicrously bold. The weirder you are, so, like, if you find your weird, really weird attributes, so, like, if you're really tall and really lanky or you're really, like, powerful and can, like, short, stocky things or really flexible... If you find all the things that are the weirdest things about you, bundle them all together and then and then mentally try and find something that's really weird about you that you try and find a like a logical course for like doing bold roots and then you bundle all that together, then you can find like a perfect it's almost like you've um like you've almost like like a you know like a jelly mould. You've almost in the rock you can find like something in the rock that's like a t- a total opposite of you that kind of fits you totally perfectly and then in theory you could you could do something that's like there's something you could do something that someone else couldn't repeat so that's what i was always trying to look for so i suppose nothing last is probably the 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 easy the like actually no probably the move on the agori is probably more like because nothing last isn't that hard that was like probably a bit bolder than other people could maybe do because it was like because you have to be willing to basically like land on your back I did a route called development to the truth that subsequently became a little bit safer, but that was probably about the limit of that for me. So I could do that move like pretty solidly. Whereas nothing lasts was like a little bit different. Cause it was like really, well, I fell off. It. it was really quite insecure climbing. So I think you can push it actually a little bit beyond being, there are some routes that you can not automate and it's not like I'm like fearless. I'm like, ter- I'm like a right gibbering wreck like, all the time. Like, even what I watched like Nick Dixon do a route and I was like just terrified like just watching him do it like that. I'm like a right chicken. It's not like I'm like fearless. It's that you're like, I don't know what you call it. you just like logically, um, you're like totally aware of your fears. Like sometimes if I'm doing like a really bold thing, I'll like deliberately like top rope or shunt something like imagining like the fear and just feeling like, Oh my god! I can't ever do this. This is just like horrible. Like, like I'm gonna die doing this, and have these like proper visions of like death of doing it. And then, um, but then, having gone through that process, you then like when you go onto the lead, everything you perceive after that point is it's not gonna be any more scary. I hope it's probably gonna be less scary because it's now a bit of a habit that you've experienced that feeling of terror. Like, kind of maybe habituates sort after of being like quite calculated. And it's—I mean—a lot of people deck out a lot, don't they? Like bouldering, so it's all relative. And then thrown into that, I think it's confused by the fact that I've taken some like really stupid falls, especially like the earlier one, like I fell off at tin whistle, and that was the really big one where I fell twenty meters. Um, That's horrible, isn't it? Yeah. So that was just stupid. That wasn't like planned. I'm not going to sit here and like pretend that was like some grand part of the grand plan. That, That was just a mistake. But a lot of decking out is like, like rope calculations. Again, it's perceived risk, isn't it? If you just grow up in like tedium and you don't, I I always feel quite guilty when like people have like really hard lives and like, I've not really had a hard life. And then you're like, and then you go and doing these things that have like really like serious consequences. And you're like, why the hell am I doing this? This is like, it's like a bit pathetic, isn't it really? I feel quite bitter that it's like quite a long time. Like, when, when was it? Now? It must be like 10 years ago or 11 years ago. And you're like, that's like a long time, isn't it? You know, if you said like, oh, like my mate died 11 years ago, you'd be like, oh, you're over it now, aren't you? But like, yeah, it's so just strong. You feel like really cheated. Yeah, so yeah. So how do we cope with it when, when Ian died totally differently and quite independently? So I just went off by myself and Luke, goodness, Luke went off by himself. Yeah, it was pretty, I don't know, it was weird, weird. Yeah, I don't know. You, you never get over either, I think, like when, when someone dies, I don't think.
1: One of the things that always feels really unfair when someone dies in a climbing accident is that the margins are so tiny. Twid commented about the accident on the Ben that if Dave hadn't hit the snowpack when he did then Ian's belay might have ripped out and he would have taken the fall as well. It could have killed both of them. Ian made mistakes here that will be familiar to most of us who've been climbing a long time. A lot of the time you get away with them. But it only takes that one time. I often think that a lot of the things we do in climbing look like insanity to the outside world. And it's quite difficult to explain to someone how this thing that looks crazy actually brings you a really deep sense of joy. In Franco's case, he's trying to rationalise this sort of risk-taking and It's kind of a contradictory thing to marry up. On the one hand, Franco is hyper-rational about how he's going about doing some of these routes, but the end result is an emotional achievement. How do you really separate the rational and emotional responses? You've been listening to Factor 2 from UK Climbing. I'm Will Treasure. Thanks for listening.